This Compass Presentation, Gene Altering in the Days of Noah versus Today, by Andy Woods, was presented at the Stealing the Mind Bible Conference. To view more Stealing titles, get information on our Holy Land trips and future Bible conferences, go to compass.org. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. And verse 37. And we're talking in this uh, session about the days of Noah. And you see the big giant ark behind me. Um, you might ask, how come there's cars in the parking lot there? <laughs> that's, the, that's the answers in Genesis ark. Have you guys gone to see that? Boy, that is something else. You should take some time to see that if you can. But why, uh, why focus on the days of Noah? Well, it relates to what the Lord said in verse 37 of Matthew 24. Jesus said, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. And so the days of Noah, just before the global flood, um, are sort of a, a picture given by the Holy Spirit to help us understand what the world will be like just before Jesus returns. Are you ready for Jesus to return, by the way? And part of his return is understanding what the world will be like just before he comes. And so what we're gonna do in this session, as time permits, we're gonna look at 10 characteristics of the days of Noah, and I'm gonna move really fast because I know you guys wanna get to number eight there. Uh, genetic tampering, which we'll see. But before we get to that, let's see if we can trace some, um, just some general themes or concepts concerning the days of Noah. There's 10 things happening. Um, the first trend of the days of Noah is there was a population explosion. Genesis 6 and verse 1 says, Now it came about that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth... And I think there's some reasons for a population explosion. Uh, I follow very closely the writings of the late Dr. Henry Morris. And in his uh, Genesis commentary, he comments on Genesis 1 verse 6, where it talks about the waters that were above the expanse. So the expanse is called sky, and there's waters below the expanse, that would be the oceans or the ocean, but what would be the waters above the expanse? Well, it's believed by many, and it's a theory, that at one time there was um, sort of a giant ball of water, a sphere of water, a globe of water that surrounded the earth, and it filtered the sun's difficult, harmful ultraviolet rays and this is what allowed people to live so long in the pre-flood world. It explains the long lifespans of people. When you look at Genesis 5, for example, you have people living into their 900s. It explains strange animals in the fossil record that we have no parallel with today. It explains where the flood waters came from 
God simply released this canopy according to this uh, theory. And it also explains that why when you look at the genealogy of Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, after the flood, man's lifespan starts to get curtailed. And so Henry Morris runs all the numbers. He was, of course, uh, a, a credentialed scientist. And he says, in the days of Noah, there could have been at least 7 billion people on the planet. And I find that very interesting because that's, you know, roughly, give or take, the same amount of people, I think we're now into the 8 billions, but the same amount of people that are on the planet today. So that would be one parallel with the days of Noah with today, and I'm going to try to talk you through 10 of these. The second characteristic of the days of Noah, and let's see how close we are to the days of Noah as we look at these characteristics. But the second characteristic of the days of Noah is these were days of technological advancement. We have all been brainwashed by evolution, you know, from the goo to you by way of the zoo. Um, over billions and billions of years. And so we think that the further back in time we go, the more primitive man is, because he was closer to the orangutan. The truth of the matter is the Bible says the exact opposite. It says the further you go back in time, the intelligence of people was at a higher level. For example, Cain, Genesis 4, verse 17, in the days of Noah, was building a city. Have you built any cities lately? Um, in Genesis 4, verse 20, it talks about they were dwelling in tents and livestock. Genesis 4, verse 21, they had musical instruments. And a very interesting passage is Genesis 4, verse 22, which says they were dealing with bronze and iron at the same time. Now, that contradicts everything modern-day anthropology teaches, because they say first we had the Bronze Age, and then later came the Iron Age, much later in history, and here is man, just before the flood, having both metals dealing with both metals. A wonderful chapter in a book, and this chapter is by a man named Don Landis, and the chapter is entitled Ancient Man, Genius, or Primitive. It's in a book called In Searching for Adam. Um, he documents all of these amazing uh, things in history that we really can't explain. Uh, the palace at Canossus on Crete, the La Bastida in Spain, the Great Pyramids of Egypt, which they still don't know exactly how those were constructed, the Stonehenge of England, the Great Wall of China, the architecture of the Incas, and we have a tendency to think that these were all very primitive civilizations. But the further you go back in time, you see a, a technological sophistication in them. And so I think that's a, another characteristic of the days of Noah that, that mirror our time period. I mean, not only was there a population explosion going on, but look at the technology of today. Look at what we're able to do. 
atomic weaponry, nuclear weaponry, automobiles, airplanes, ships, computers. Um, the, the, the sophistication of modern man is, is uncanny. And it's almost as if we have become technological giants, but ethical midgets. And that's exactly what the days of Noah were like. And that's largely what our society is like today. In fact, Paul the Apostle predicted this in 2 Timothy 3 verse 7 when he says the last days will be characterized by people who are always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. The, the sophistication in people is amazing technologically but they have never trusted in the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. There's a third characteristic of the days of Noah, and it has to do with the insensitivity of people towards God. You know, you would think that all of this technology would drive people towards God, and it actually had the exact opposite effect. Jesus in Matthew 24 spoke about that. When he said in Matthew 24, verse 38, for in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood took them all away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Too consumed with daily life, but no time for God. And when the flood hit, it took them by surprise even though, as I'll show you in a moment, they had ample warning of this flood that was coming. And I believe that this characterizes our time period very well because many, many people when the Lord returns are gonna be completely and totally caught off guard. In fact, Jesus in Luke 18 verse eight asked this very interesting question. He said, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? question mark. And I wonder if that's true. Will there actually be believers on the earth when Jesus comes back? A fourth characteristic of the days of Noah is the ridicule of God's people. Why do I think there was a ridicule of God's people in the days of Noah? Because everything that Noah was preaching, and he was a preacher, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says that. Everything that he was preaching made no sense. He was preaching for 120 years. I'll show you that number in just a little bit. About a coming deluge. And they didn't have a conceptual idea of rain. Because Genesis 2, verses 5 and 6 says, For the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth. And then it says, a mist used to arise from the ground and water the whole surface of the ground. And because the canopy, according to the canopy theory, was in place, uh, there was sort of a greenhouse incubating type of effect, and water was coming up from the ground to moisturize everything. And so you're dealing with a group of people that really didn't know what the concept of rain was. And here Noah is speaking of a worldwide flood. And if that weren't enough, he's got this massive structure in his driveway, probably, <laughs> uh, called the ark. And the whole thing made absolutely no sense to people. 
And this is why Noah, Hebrews 11, verse 7, is a man of faith. He had to completely trust what God said. And he had to set aside uh, his, his understanding of how the world that he was ministering in operated. And no doubt this man was subject to incredible derision. And if there were 70 billion to 80, uh, 7 billion, I should say, to 8 billion people on the planet, you ask yourself, well, how many converts did Noah have? And the answer is he only had eight. That would be Noah and Mrs. Noah. Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Joppeth, and their respective wives. The Bible is very clear, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, only eight on the ark, and after 120 years of preaching to over seven billion people, the man had no converts outside of his immediate family. So when you get discouraged in the ministry, <laughs> uh, just remember that. And there's no doubt the, the ridicule that was heaped on this man. And that kind of describes today, doesn't it? Second Peter 3, verses 3 through 6 says, In the last days, first of all, there will be mockers coming with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? It's a prediction of derision coming against God's people as we get closer to the end of the age. Uh, just spend some time on media and you'll see this. And watch for this too in the movies, entertainment. Every time you see a Christian portrayed, it's just a matter of time before you figure out in that movie the Christian is the psychopath <laughs> or the bad guy. You know, I, I think of, uh, of the movie The Shawshank Redemption, if you've seen that. And of course, the Christian in there is the warden, who is the one, you know, that's a hypocrite and et cetera. And so that's how entertainment portrays Christians today. This, this derision and this ridicule. There was something else going on in the days of Noah. This takes us to number five. The world was filled with violence. And we get that from Genesis six and verse 11. It says the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence Verse 13 of Genesis 6 says, The end of humanity has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. Uh, you might be interested in the Hebrew word violence. It sounds an awful lot like the word Hamas, if that rings a bell, which is a Middle Eastern terrorist group named after this Semitic use of the word violence. These are all the people in the Middle East that want peace, right? And in the days of Noah, they had lost the concept that man is an image bearer of God. That's what makes us all valuable. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him both male and female. Verse 26 says, God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And when violence is perpetrated against a human being, God takes that as an attack on himself because you're attacking and destroying a being that bears God's image. And you compare that to today, the level of violence. 
I was reading a blog recently, and it says this, how watching TV affects kids. It says, according to the American Academy of the Pediatrics website, children between the age of 2 to 18 spend an average of three hours each day watching television. A three-year national study reported by the AAP found that children's shows had the most violence of all television programming. Statistics read that some cartoons averaged 20 acts of violence in one hour. And by the age of 18, children will have seen 16,000 simulated murders, 200,000 acts of violence, Young people are especially in jeopardy of the negative effects of television because many younger children cannot discriminate between what they see and what is real. Close quote. Um, I have some pretty good, uh, a pretty good source in the military. And he tells me that when people were recruited into our military, one of the hardest things to teach people was in some circumstances, you have to kill another human being. And it, it was hard to get people to that point. He tells me, you know, Andy, um, we don't have that problem anymore. Because video games and television and so-called entertainment have desensitized people to violence. They've desensitized people to the reality that when you commit an act of violence, you're actually committing a heinous offense against God himself because you have destroyed in cold blood a being that, that bears his image. So those first uh, few, I think that takes us to number five, were easy. Now here's where you wanna buckle your seatbelts because the next three that I'm giving won't make any sense unless you first buy into a particular interpretation of Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. And you know the passage well. It says, The sons of God began to marry the daughters of men, and the Nephilim were born. And as you know, there's two major views on this subject. A lot of people just say, oh, that's just the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain intermarrying. Nothing to see here, folks. Move right along is the mindset. But there's a completely different interpretation of Genesis 6 that the sons of God were actually some of the fallen angels, and they were procreating with human women just before the flood. And it created this strange hybrid creature called the Nephilim, which means the fallen ones. And as you know, this issue is very controversial. In fact, on one part of the screen, you see a lot of good Bible teachers that say this passage has nothing to do with angels, but on the other side of the screen, you'll see that there's an equal number of very good teachers that say this is speaking of some sort of angelic eruption. I believe that this is speaking of angels, fallen angels. And one of the reasons I think that is the expression sons of God in Genesis 6, which is B'nai Elohim, 
is only used five times total in the Bible, twice in Genesis 6, and the only other three times is in the book of Job. Now, can someone tell me what the earliest written book of the Bible was? It's the book of Job. And so Job three times calls the sons of God angels. And Moses, when he finally wrote the book of Genesis, around the time of the Exodus, we believe, uh, the only record that he had was the book of Job, which uses sons of God as angels. Now, why would fallen angels do this? They're trying to stop something. Immediately when man fell, God announced in Genesis 3, verse 15, that there's coming one from the seed of the woman, who's the woman, Eve, from her seed, meaning that this coming one must be human. And that's our doctrine of Christ. If you want a fancy name for this, it's called the hypostatic union. Jesus was at the point of the virgin conception, 100% God, 100% man. And his coming into the world is announced in Genesis 3, verse 15. And it's announced in Genesis 3, verse 15, that when this coming one comes, he will take the serpent's head, who's the serpent? Satan, and crush it. And Satan doesn't like that prophecy. You know, Satan, as some have said, has, has read the Bible and he doesn't like his retirement plan. And so all the way through the Old Testament, he is working in history to stop the birth of this coming Messiah. It's just in Genesis 6, he was doing something unprecedented. He was tampering with the genetics of the human race to create a hybrid creature that's not fully human. That's who the Nephilim are, in my understanding. And if you create a race of people that aren't fully human, they cannot beget this Messiah who must be not just 100% God, but 100% what? 100% man. So this would explain an awful lot, like in Genesis 6 verse 11, it says, now the earth was corrupted in the sight of God. What I'm seeing in that is genetic corruption. It goes on and it says it was, verse 12, it was corrupt for humanity had corrupted its ways um, upon the earth. And it certainly explains three New Testament passages that are there on the screen that we don't have time to look up, which connect this fallen angelic eruption with the days of Noah, explaining why some of the fallen angels are currently in a place of incarceration. So there are myriads of angels, and apparently a third of them fell with Lucifer's rebellion, which always makes me feel good, because that means there's two-thirds on our side, amen? <laughs> now, some of them got involved with what's happening in Genesis 6, and because they left their natural abode and began to tamper with God's design and began to tamper with the genetics of the human race, and because their sin was so egregious, God took those fallen angels involved in that sin, and he put, immediately put them in incarceration. That is your only explanation as to why some demons are in jail and some are free. You believe demons are free today, right? Some are. 
I think a lot of them work for the airlines, quite, quite frankly. <laughs> Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of this dark world. And it's interesting that when you trace this interpretation I'm giving back into early Judaism, this was the traditional interpretation of early Judaism. It was the traditional interpretation of the early church. And Renald Showers, of formerly of Friends of Israel, says the other interpretation, the Cain-Seth intermarriage view, didn't even show up in church history until the fourth century AD. Now I realize there's a lot of objections to this. People usually go over to Matthew 22, verse 30, and it says angels don't marry. Well, that's a statement about the unfallen angels. We're dealing here with the fallen angels. And then people object to this idea that an angel can take on a hu hum human form to procreate with a human woman because people say angels are spirits. Well, they are spirits, but the Bible says, Hebrews 13, verse 2, some of you have entertained angels unaware. So apparently angels, although their normal realm is the spiritual realm, have this ability to take on human flesh. So if this interpretation that I've just spoken of is true, it tells you three other major clues that were happening in the days of Noah. This takes us to number six. The days of Noah were days of demonic inspiration. In order for a human woman to procreate with a fallen angel, think of the influence the realm of the demonic had in the days of Noah. And that, quite frankly, is exactly what's predicted for our day. There will be a revival of occultism in the last days. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 says, but the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of what? demons. And look at the explosion of occultic phenomena in our day. Look at the things that people turn to, to satisfy their curiosity and their spiritual hunger. Yoga, spirit guides, horoscopes, psychics, palm readers, astrological projections, channeling, Ouija boards, I've been very interested, I, I like detective shows. And it's very interesting how in many of these shows they turn to this source of what they think is light to solve uh, an unsolved mystery. Not understanding that this source of light is Satan and his minions because Satan masquerades as an angel of, of light. This takes us to an eighth characteristic of the days of Noah, and that has to do with sexual deviancy. In order for a human woman to procreate with a fallen angel, what obviously had happened in the days of Noah was God's sexual design that he himself established had been obliterated. God has a standard for sexuality, and don't get mad at me, I didn't invent the standard. It's what God says. 
Genesis 1, verse 27, you'll see the standard. Genesis 2, verse 24, you'll see the standard. Matthew 19, when Jesus, verses 3 through 6, was asked about the standard, these are the verses that he quoted. And that standard is one man for one woman for one life. Heterosexual monogamy. Now, when you talk like this, it's always risky because you're talking to people who could have broken the standard. And praise the Lord for God's grace. Amen? But that doesn't change the fact that there's a standard. And we don't have any right to rewrite the standard because we didn't come up with it. God came up with it. But when you dismiss God from your thinking, what do you do with your sexual energies? Well, you just write your own standard. I found this uh, very interesting quote from Jeff Kinley in his book about the days of Noah. I haven't heard any prophecy teacher ever surface this. He says, according to ancient Jewish rabbis, homosexuality was practiced worldwide before the flood. These esteemed teachers claim that marriage contracts were written between homosexuals in Noah's generation with songs even composed for such occasions. If they're right, that's something that hasn't been legitimized in any civilization since before the flood and could add more nuance to Jesus' words about in Noah's day they were being given in marriage. These rabbis also wrote that once homosexual marriage was officially, officially recognized, this served as the trigger to unleash God's judgment via the flood. And I wanted to find out where Jeff Kenley got this, so I tracked down his sources. And here's one of the ancient rabbis equating the triggering of God's judgment via the flood to the acceptance of homosexuality. Here's another such source. And boy, is that not happening today. Uh, look at how God's sexual standard is being blurred. The, the sexual revolution came in the 1960s. Let's cast off God's standard. And it's interesting today that many of the things once seemed deviant are now being mainstreamed. No-fault divorce, pornography, homosexuality. And I, they keep adding, we have LGBTQU, and once I figure out what those mean, then they add something else, another initial, and it just goes, it's like alphabet soup. And even pedophilia itself is on the verge of being normalized. Here's an article from a Rutgers law professor, and she is arguing that pedophilia is a disorder, but not a crime. And I'm here to tell you, based on God's word and as a preacher of God's word, there's only so much of this God is going to put up with. You can take God's design for sexuality and so distort it that God finally says, that's enough. And his judgment comes. That was happening in the days of Noah. There's an eighth characteristic that was happening in the days of Noah, and it has to do with genetic tampering. If the interpretation that I have of Genesis 6 is accurate, the gene pool of the human race was being tampered with to prevent the birth of Jesus. 
to destroy the hypostatic union, to create a race of people that aren't fully human. They're called, verse 4, the Nephilim. That's why when you look at Genesis 6, verse 8, Genesis 6, verse 9, it keeps saying Noah was blameless and righteous in his generation. It says that twice. Blameless and righteous. And track down that second word and how it's used in the rest of the Bible. And you'll see that that second word, if I remember right, it's righteous. It's in Genesis 6, verse 9. I may have the order backwards. It might be righteous and blameless. But anyway, look at the second use of that word in Genesis 6, verse 9. And what you'll discover is that second use of the word is used to describe the Passover lamb. Exodus 12, verse 5, which had to be genetically perfect. So when it says Noah was perfect in his generations, it's not saying he was such a swell guy. Because he, he got a little drunk, you remember, in the post-flood world. What it's saying is his gene pool was uncontaminated by the providence of God. And that's why he, only he and the eight in the ark could have the genetics in terms of purity necessary to bring forth the Messiah. And that honor, of course, fell to his son, Shem. And that's what Nephilim means. It means fallen ones. And what is Satan trying to do? He's trying to lock the human race into a firm, permanent level of fallenness so that the Messiah could never come and crush his head, which means he wins. Now, you compare that to today, and I'm not trying to argue that exactly what was happening then is happening now, but I do find it very interesting that we, with all of these things that have happened in the last few years, what we're discovering is genetic alterations. And there's a lot of experts that understand this a lot better than I do. A lot of it is over my pay grade, so to speak. But they'll talk about the mandatory vaccination and the alteration that it has in the genetics of people. Uh, Carrie Madej says, quote, so they can't make the normal vaccine. It's a recombinant code with a gene synthesis. That means they're pushing together different types of genetic material, pushing them together like a Frankenstein puzzle. And then to fill in the missing blanks, they use an artificial intelligence computing program to do that for him. She goes on and says the ramifications of this, it can act as a computer hacker program. It can act as a one way in, always to hack the body. They say they're suppressing our immune systems so they can sneak in the code and our body won't destroy it. I don't know if you follow Catherine Austin Fitz, formerly um, assistant to the HUD director in the Bush administration. In the movie Planet Lockdown, she says the technocracy that they are pushing towards is what is called transhumanism. Essentially what you do is you use injections to inject materials into the body that create the equivalent of an operating system and a receiver and you can literally hook everyone up to the cloud. The Bible calls it the mark of the beast, she says. Now I do want to be clear, I don't believe these things are the mark of the beast. 
But I believe that there's psychological preparation for the mark of the beast. And it's very interesting that when you listen to many of these experts, they talk about there's a deliberate attempt to alter the genetics of the human race via the vaccine. She goes on and she says, many people are familiar with the social credit system in China. It's very similar. If you install the same smart grid in their car, their community, and now literally in their body, you have got them 24-7 surveillance. I thought I used to understand prophecy until 2020 hit. I thought I used to understand Revelation 9 verse 21 in the tribulation. It says they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries. What's the Greek word behind the English word sorceries? Pharmacon. You see the same thing in Revelation 18, verse 21. Because all the nations were deceived by your witchcraft. That's a translation from the Greek word pharmakia. Obviously, pharmakon, pharmakia, we get the word pharmacy, where you get drugs. The worldwide deception of the masses via drugs. And when you throw into the mix genetic tampering... I start to think, my, think to myself, well, that's exactly what was happening in the days of Noah, something very, very similar. And so I find that to be a, another very interesting parallel. But who's, who's interested in some good news? There's some good news in all of this, because in the days of Noah, salvation was available. And Genesis 6, verse 3 says, nevertheless... His days will be 120 years. God postponed judgment for 120 years. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2, verse 5, preaching the message of judgment and grace for 120 years. And God was waiting for 120 years, which is an awful long time. That's basically half the length of the United States of America, 120 years. In the midst of all of this evil, God was waiting for people to repent, to change their ways. Ultimately, what God wants is for people to trust in his provision. Who's the oldest man that ever lived in the Bible? Methuselah. He lived 969 years. Have you ever asked yourself what the name Methuselah means? Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, in Hebrew, Methuselah means when he dies, it shall be sent. Indeed, according to the chronology of Genesis, the very year Methuselah died was the year the flood came. And I find it very interesting that God said, when he dies, it will come. When he dies, the flood will come. I mean, think, think if you had a guy like that in your neighborhood. You know, he gets the sniffles and everybody's worried. Oh, no. But it's interesting to me that God assigned the date of the flood to come with the death of Methuselah, and Methuselah is the oldest living man in the Bible that we have record of. Does that not show you the patience of God? The forbearance of God. 1 Peter 3 verse 20 says, When the patience of God kept waiting in the days 
of Noah. And in the days of Noah, in spite of all of this evil and in spite of all of this judgment, salvation was available. How do I know salvation was available? I know that because of the size of the ark. The ark was our best measurements, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. It had on it, we think, 16,000 animals. And yet it was capable of holding 125,000 animals. In other words, there's room. How, how does that song go? There's room at the cross for you. And I don't think pictures like this help us. <laughs> you know, you got the giraffe with his head sticking out and the orang, you know, we draw these pictures and they're well-intentioned, but we make it sound like the ark was just jam-packed with people. Read, if you're interested in this, read the work of an engineer, his last name is Wood Morapi, and he created a study called Noah's Ark, a feasibility study. And he tells you exactly how big the ark was, how many animals were most likely on the ark, and you get the idea of a space that was massive. And when the flood hit, there would be room for other people. But they didn't take Noah up on the offer of salvation. Isn't that what it's like today? In Noah's day, salvation, at least from the flood, was found in an ark built with wood. And today, salvation is available in a cross made of wood. Galatians 3, verse 13. And when you read 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21, you'll see how the ark is sort of a type of the cross. It says there, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, corresponding to that. It's an analogy, in other words. The baptism that now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. There were probably in the minds of people before the flood hit and even as the waters were rising, they probably thought, well, I'll just seek safe ground somewhere else. You know, I'll just go to this mountain chain over here or this place over there. And the truth of the matter is there was only salvation in that ark. If you were not in that ark, you were going to be swept away in judgment. And many, many people today are just like that with Jesus. Oh, I'm going to find salvation my own route, my own path. I'm glad Jesus died for the sins of the world, but thanks, no thanks. I've found enlightenment in my own guru sort of thing. And the Bible is very clear. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Notice the definite article in front of each of those descriptors. And then he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. There is salvation found in no other name. For there is no other name given under heaven, Acts 4 verse 12, by which we must be saved. In Noah's day, salvation was available. Salvation was exclusive. 
salvation was ignored. And is that not today? Salvation is available. Salvation is exclusive. But in many instances, salvation is ignored. That's why we say today is the day of salvation. What a, what a tragedy to come to a conference like this and learn all of this fascinating information but leave here unsaved. And we invite people, even where they're seated or listening online or wherever, to be saved right now. And how do you do that? Well, the Bible is pretty clear. It says it 160 times. You place your faith for your eternity and the safekeeping of your soul exclusively into the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. You're no longer trusting in yourself, your religiosity, your good works. You're trusting in him alone by himself for salvation. And someone can do that just even as I'm speaking. Believe means to trust. And when the spirit convicts us of our need to do this, we trust in the provision of Jesus. And the moment that happens, we're saved just like that. It's not a 12-step program. It's a single step. And God has made it so easy that it's actually a stumbling block to people when they hear the simplicity of this. Which takes us to our 10th and final point, number 10, judgment came. Genesis 6 and verse 3, God says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. In the days of Noah, the spirit of God was at work via conviction. In spite of all of this evil that we've looked at, because of the patience of God. And yet God said that age of grace is not going to continue forever. It lasted 120 years which is a very long time in my opinion. But finally God said, that's enough. Grace is over. People have had an opportunity. It's time for judgment to come. And what a tragic day that was. Jesus in Matthew 24 verse 39 says, they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. It is a, a frightening thing to think about that you can actually exhaust the patience of God himself. And we naively assume that because we have grace today, that's the way it's always going to be. And yet, that's not what the days of Noah teach us. So the days of Noah, the days of population explosion, technological advancement, insensitivity towards God, ridicule of God's people, violence, demonic inspiration, sexual deviancy, genetic tampering, and yet the available of salvation and the inevitability of judgment. May God help us to understand this paradigm that he's given us particularly in the time period that we're living in. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, your word, grateful for what you have shown us here. 
help us to live these things out as we leave this conference equipped for you in these last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said. You've been watching Gene Altering in the Days of Noah versus Today, presented by Andy Woods. To view more stealing titles, get information on our Holy Land trips, and future Bible conferences, go to compass.org.